This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. As the government of Canada works to make Canada a world-leading centre for innovation, we're keenly aware of the relationship uh, between intellectual property rights and innovation. In many ways, uh, intellectual property can be thought of as one of the currencies of the modern economy. So we know that putting in place the right policy framework is essential for supporting inventors and creators who wish to bring their ideas and products to market. We also know that it is our role as a government to help these folks by creating more good, well-paying jobs, uh, which will in turn strengthen and grow uh, the Canadian economy, and in particular, the Canadian middle class. The truth is that uh, Canada's IP regime is robust and amongst uh, the top IP regimes internationally. In recent years, we've seen a growing effort to link long-standing concerns about Canadian innovation with patents. The argument, which has crossed into Canada's strategy around artificial intelligence, posits that the road to an innovative economy is inextricably linked to a greater emphasis on intellectual property and, in particular, on patents. Want more Shopify's? Direct your policy towards more patents, goes the story. But what if the correlation between patents and innovation is weak at best? What if an emphasis on patents may actually be harmful to startups whose attention and resources is better placed elsewhere? Peter Carisha is a successful innovator and investor who recently wrote a Globe and Mail op-ed that raises precisely these issues. The co-founder of Key Identity, a Toronto-based company focused on decentralized identity solutions, and a veteran of companies such as IBM, Microsoft, and Omer's Ventures, he argued that, and I'll quote, creating policy that pushes patents, regardless of area or company stage, engages success by counting patents is misguided and in fact dangerous to the success of startups. He joins me on the podcast to talk about his experience and concerns with direction of government policy that may be mistaking an IP policy for an innovation one. Peter, welcome to the podcast. And thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a, it's a real pleasure to, to have you on. You know, in, in keeping with the Law Bites title, the, this podcast is pretty lawyer and legal academic heavy, but I'm always delighted to welcome a broader range of perspectives and, and have had politicians and business people, um, entertainers and others come on the podcast. You bring years of experience from the venture and technology world. And the what what prompted this episode of the podcast was a, an op-ed that you published earlier this month in the Globe and Mail on patents. Uh, and your take that we've seen too much emphasis on patents as a means to solve Canada's innovation problems. I want to get to that piece and, and some of your concerns and ideas. But before we do that, why don't we start with your background? Can you uh, highlight a little bit your career path? Sure, sure. I'm, uh, um, uh, I started in, in tech or my interest in tech started, uh, when I got my first computer back in the early eighties as a little, as a kid and, uh, started, uh, developing software. Uh, so then I took the path of going to the University of Waterloo, uh, comp sci, uh, on graduating, I worked at, uh, a software company called Lotus Development, which, uh, some of your older uh, listeners may still be familiar with. It, uh, it was not a car company. 
Um, we were acquired by IBM in 1995, uh, was there for a couple more years and then moved to Microsoft. And then in, uh, in 2000, I was, uh, I was uh, recruited into a, uh, a VC firm as a partner, uh, focused on enterprise software. Um, and that was based here in Toronto. Um, uh, and worked and uh, invested mostly in enterprise software companies uh, uh, in Canada. And um, then in 2010, uh, was recruited to uh, help start up Omer's Ventures uh, as a managing director. Uh, I hired out the initial team there, made uh, the first investments, and also created the first investment thesis uh, uh, to, to guide those investments. Uh, was there for uh, for a couple of years and then moved on to uh, uh, run to be the president of Next Canada, which is a uh, national technology accelerator with programs like uh, Next 36 and uh, and Next AI. Um, and then in 2016, uh, a founder uh, that I was quite close to, um, a company I did, led the seed investment round in when I was at Omer's, uh, asked me to uh, to join them uh, as they were scaling, starting to scale their business, and that was a company called uh, at the time Wave Accounting, um, uh, and then uh, uh, their name changed to, to Wave Financial. Um, and uh, so I joined there as the head of uh, strategy, biz dev, and uh, and corp dev. Was involved in uh, negotiating uh, equity investments and partnership agreements with the uh, Royal Bank of Canada, uh, uh, ADP, the payroll company, uh, equity investments by uh, global banks like National Australia Bank, Power Corporation invested, um, and then in 2019 we sold the we sold the company to H&R Block for um, at the time uh, uh, it was a 540 million dollar exit. And then, uh, in two, I was uh, planning on uh, kind of semi-retiring then, uh, that this was early 2000 and, uh, um, uh, then unfortunately COVID hit. Uh, so I, uh, my travel plans were kind of cut short and, uh, I, uh, ended up, uh, was, uh, was asked to join, uh, Information Venture Partners, which is a Toronto based fintech, uh, VC firm, uh, where I've known the founding partners for many years. And I joined them as a venture partner, uh, focused on helping them on uh, due diligence on new opportunities, as well as uh, their existing portfolio company. And then uh, most recently, uh, 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 mid last year, Kirk, the co-founder CEO of Wave, was uh, transitioning out of H&R Block. And he and I started discussing ideas around how we could work together again. Uh, and out of that came... Uh, uh, a company that we co-founded uh, mid last year called Key Identity, uh, focused on decentralized identity technologies. Uh, we we announced in August an eight and a half million dollar seed round, um, and right now we're hard at work uh, uh, getting a product out to market uh, in the next few months. Okay, so as, as a super interesting career path, obviously a really successful one, and and certainly you've been involved in, in a in sort of a remarkably wide range of uh, perspectives when it comes to innovation and and the funding that exists. You know, I out of all of that, I didn't hear a whole lot of focus on policy. Doesn't sound like that's really been your beat. So, what was it that prompted you to write the op-ed in the Globe? Yeah, I mean, I'm normally a behind the scenes uh, kind of person. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, certainly, uh, you know, over the last few years, you know, I've, there's been a small but pretty vocal group of people that have been talking about patents and their importance in a way that simply didn't jive with, uh, 
with uh, with my experiences um and and you know recognize you know my my experiences have been very very focused on uh you know early stage startups um almost exclusively software companies uh and so it didn't really bother me because uh um it didn't really have an impact on me um but then recently there have started being uh, uh you know those voices have started uh, influencing and impacting uh, policy at a governmental level and uh and and so there was uh, really kind of two triggering events recently that kind of made me say listen I've got to get my voice out there uh and and my voice you know like I've got lots of uh VC friends uh and successful entrepreneurs that are all in uh, uh agreement with uh, with uh with many of the things that I I I think here I uh, so the the first thing is that like I've been I was a uh, or I am a uh, on an investment committee for a seed fund and there was a startup that we were working with uh, looking to put a small amount of money into you know, we're talking like $100,000 so not a lot of money um and they were very very focused on from a use of proceeds perspective using some of that money to file a patent um and that's when I realized that these voices are starting to impact the um uh, startups in a way that is actually detrimental to their success. Uh, and then really the, the, the last straw was, uh, there was an article in the globe, uh, a month or two ago, uh, about, uh, um, artificial intelligence and patents, uh, and the subsequent commentary on Twitter about that, uh, which really then made me say, uh, you listen, I got to get my voice out there on this. Okay. That's, I mean, it's interesting. I, I actually, I do recall the, that globe piece. There was, it was, I believe, part of a, a series that had a, a strong emphasis that linked patents and innovation. Now, now your response argues that the evidence suggests that the links to patents, particularly startup success, I mean, it's notable that that's where you've put in a lot of your emphasis is, you know, is scant at best, that there's not a lot of evidence there. Uh, can you expand a bit? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, and my, my concerns here are entirely based on the evidence that I've seen. Um, and I'm, I'm always willing to take more evidence in and, and reevaluate my opinions. Um, now the important thing to, to kind of lay out at the beginning and which I did highlight in my op-ed was that I, I am focused here. My, my concerns are specifically focused on software patents. Um, you know, this is kind of where my experience lies. And, and I do think there are, uh, different, um, different facts, uh, when you start moving outside of that to physical, uh, products and, uh, and materials and chemistry and things like that. Um, so, uh, you know, my background, you know, as, as I've kind of mentioned, I, I've literally been involved in hundreds of software companies over the years and not once, not even once has a patent ever made a difference to any of these companies, not once. Um, and that doesn't mean that sometimes um, uh, th they could make a difference because th there are cases that I, I know of that I was not necessarily involved in where they where they have made a difference. But it's very, very rare that they do make a difference. Uh, and, and there's a number of examples that you can give, like prominent examples that everybody's aware of. I mean, there's there's Shopify, um, you know, Shopify and, and Toby has been quite vocal about uh, about IP and specifically patents and, and, and how important they've been to his business or how, uh, unimportant they have been. I mean, here's a company that scaled from, you know, they really started scaling in 2008, um, uh, through, uh, the, the, you know, 2015, 18, 20, 
uh, and literally had not one core patent that you could point to that drove that success. Um, but I also find, you know, far more interesting is that, uh, you know, in 2008, e-commerce was a pretty well-known uh, and well-researched um, uh, and commercialized area of business. I mean, there was Amazon and eBay and then service providers to these markets like IBM and, and Oracle and literally thousands and thousands and thousands of e-commerce patents that had been laid out before Shopify rose to prominence. And literally not one of them was able to stop Shopify's growth. Like, if, if, if like, doesn't that kind of point to the ineffectiveness of, of a software patent? Uh, how could, how is it possible that Shopify was able to navigate all of this? And be, be as successful as they were, essentially become the dominant e-commerce software provider uh, in the world. Um, and so there's an example of one company that didn't use patents to get there. Now look at a, the other end of the, of the spectrum, you know, IBM, which is like the 800 pound gorilla in, in patents. They've literally been the number one filer of US patents for 25, 30 years now. You know, I think last year they lost the title. Um, and in just the last few years, have filed over 3,600 pat uh, 3, patents in the area of artificial intelligence. And yet, over the last 12, 15 years, their market cap has declined by 50%. Revenue has declined by 50%. I mean, everybody remembers the term Watson, but who's talking about Watson today? Everybody's talking about OpenAI and ChatGPT and Google and Facebook's AI initiatives. So where did that get IBM? Um and, and, you know, I could throw in another Canadian example. I mean, if you look at RIM and BlackBerry, you know, back in the 2000s, they were, they were patenting, patenting over, they, they were filing over 600 US patents annually. And yet, and, you know, and that covered all aspects of a smartphone, um, including the software. Uh, and yet, despite that, Apple was able to rise to dominance and then, Right in their, right in their, you know, right behind them was Google with Android. Like, how did patents not help BlackBerry uh, protect the franchise that they had created? And maybe they're, I mean, I have no idea if they had to, if Apple or Google had to uh, license patents from BlackBerry. But if they did, that revenue is immaterial and didn't stop BlackBerry's decline uh, as a, as a dominant pr uh, player in the, in the smartphones market. Yeah, no, those are some pretty compelling uh, examples, to be sure. You know, the the Shopify one, in particular, I think uh, rings true and seems highly relevant because my recollection from the piece that you're talking about in the Globe was that the argument was we need more Shopify's in Canada. <laughs> yeah, uh, and then in the next sentence says we need more patenting in Canada, in effect. And I think the point you're making is that you know Shopify, in many respects, is an illustration of of how patents are not necessarily the be all and end all when it comes to innovation and uh, commercial success in that space. You know, given that the, these kinds of examples that you're able to cite, you know, why do you think we've seen this, this significant emphasis, some coming from the private sector and now increasingly adopted within government uh, around patents as if it's the secret sauce that will solve what I think is widely recognized as an innovation problem in Canada? Yeah, um, you know, I, it's a really good question. Uh, and I'm not entirely sure. I, I mean, I have some theories. Uh, you know, certainly, you know, there's been a number of, uh, you know, influential individuals that have been beating on this drum for a while. 
uh, you know, for whatever reasons, and and they seem to be getting traction now on some of their uh, some of their concerns. Um, I think you know it's it's easy also to you know kind of wrap the flag around this thing too, and uh, you know I hear this I this thing about protect Canadian IP, uh, and you know honestly I I have no idea what Canadian IP even means. Is that a that it was it was you know created by a Canadian citizen that it was Canadian created by a Canadian company that frankly was you know has. 60% shareholders that are Americans. Like I, I have no idea what Canadian IP even means. Um, and, and then I, th I think also, and, and this is, you know, I, I, I don't fault people for this because I think, you know, people want to be able to measure things and, and innovation is an incredibly hard thing to measure. And, and so, you know, I think it's, it's easy for policymakers to latch onto something that you can count. Um, and and so be able to point to that and say, listen, the dollars we're spending are actually generating real value because, you know, last year we had this number of patents filed and this year we have this many. Um, but it really doesn't go the next mile, which is kind of like, and what was the value that that patent generated for Canada? Um, you know, there should almost be some, you know, some kind of an analysis called the return on patent value, or I don't know what, but something where you can say, you know, this is the value that that patent has created over time, whether it's jobs or revenue or, or uh, you know, the ability to uh, build a moat around the company to allow them to continue to operate um, uh, successfully and, and, and ward off competitors. Yeah, no, it's interesting that, uh, that, that you make that point in terms of that desire, certainly for, for something to measure and that notion of what counts as Canadian. Uh, you know, there are echoes of that in a lot of different digital policies right now. We're seeing the same thing arise in the context of culture and what counts as a Canadian film. We had a whole series of, uh, Canadian winners at the Oscars, none of whom were in films that were technically CanCon. And, you know, <laughs> that, that, those, those issues are, you know, seem to pop up in a lot of places where we know, we know, we, we want to ensure that there's a Canadian presence and Canadian success, but, but how we determine even what counts as Canadian can be difficult. Now, I, I noted in the piece, you really do distinguish a little bit between some of the big companies and the smaller companies. Can you, can you talk a bit about, because you're certainly not anti-patent. You do talk about how big companies appear to use patents for defensive purposes, for example. Uh, but you're obviously much more cautious about the patent emphasis for startups. Um, can, you, can you explain a little bit why companies at different stages in their lives might be looking at patents in different ways? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I... Um... And I, I'm not an expert on this, so part of part of my opinions on this are are based on what I, you know, what I see and what I read, as opposed to my personal experiences. Uh, you know, and it's been a long time since I've worked at Microsoft and uh, and IBM. Um, but what it what it seems like is that you know large companies start to accumulate uh, patents, um, whether they develop that uh, those patents on their own or whether they buy. Uh, you know, patent portfolios from other companies, uh, they seem to do it as a way to protect themselves from competitors. And frankly, I mean, if you look, you know, recently Shopify uh, has started doing a bit of this too, um, despite what Toby has said uh, uh, about his thoughts around patents. Uh, and, and, you know, I, in one way, it feels like it, you know, it, it's almost, there's almost a bit of like deterrence by way of mutually assured destruction. It's like if, if company A sues company B, 
you know, company B will go through their portfolio of patents and find two. I mean, these companies are often have hundreds, if not thousands of different products uh, and many of them competitive with each other uh, in some way. Uh, so then company B will go through their list of patents and say, okay, well, we can make, uh, you know, we can countersue on these four patents for this product. And we don't know exactly if they are infringing or not, but we'll throw a lawsuit back at them. And now it, like, it almost becomes less about whether you're actually infringing and just, you know, just the cost of litigation is so high that they basically just say, okay, well, let's just cross license these portfolios to each other and call it a day. And, and that seems to be how it works. Uh, it's almost like an insurance policy you're getting to use. Should somebody sue you, um, you have an ability to sue them back. And then, you know, now, and now everybody's kind of at a standstill. Yeah. You do certainly hear a lot about that from a defensive perspective and how these patents can be used. Turning to the startup side, because you've, you know, you've, you've been active in that space, trying to incubate and, and develop these kinds of companies. Uh, you know, what do you see as the problems if they are focusing on patents? And what do you recommend to those companies that they they should be emphasizing or focusing on? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the first problem I would kind of like is, uh, I, I mean, I would almost kind of classify it as a, a resource allocation problem. So, you know, you're a startup. And and the reality is patents are expensive. Um, you know, now, you know, if you're a big company, you're thinking, you know, what do you mean? A patent only costs us 30,000 bucks. And, you know, $30,000 isn't a lot of money. And maybe it's 20,000, maybe it's 40,000, you know, ballpark. That's kind of the price. Um, and, you know, for, for a startup that's only raised, say, a million dollars of seed funding, $30,000 is a lot of money. Um, but it's also, and more, you know, more important than the direct costs of getting a patent, you know, is the, the time and focus of literally probably the most important people in your business. The person who would have developed that idea is probably your top engineer or your, or one of your co-founders. Um, and now you need to take those couple of people, Put them in rooms for a number of meetings with with a patent agent, uh, with lawyers, uh, exchange emails, review documents, draft documents. Um, that's a lot of time you're spending when really you should be uh, working on your product, talking with your early beta customers, iterating the product. Uh, you know, you typically probably at that stage only have three or five or ten uh, uh key people, engineers or uh, uh, designers uh, or product people. Uh, and now you're, you're tying them up for maybe 20% of the time for three weeks or four weeks. And that may not sound like a lot of time, but when you only have six months of runway, that's a lot of time. Uh, when instead you should be trying to get some indication from customers that you have product market fit, because that is why an investor invests in you. Not because you go in and say, I filed, I have a provisional patent on this one process in my software. And that VC is going to say to you, well, that's great, but I don't even, like, there's no evidence your customer even wants that software yet. Um, so, uh, you, you know, really uh, at that point, everybody in the company should be focused on on getting feedback and iterating the product. Um, uh, you know, one, uh, you know, a good example of this is, you know, most of us have probably used Instagram um, uh, most of us have probably not used bourbon. Uh, bourbon was actually the first version of Instagram. Uh, you know, that came out in 2009. 
at that time, if you recall a product called Foursquare, which was like this check-in app where you could check in that you were at your Starbucks or at a hockey game or something like that. That is what Instagram was originally for the first year. They raised a half million of seed funding on that idea uh, and they got no traction. Um, imagine if they had to like three months in or six months in, if they had written a patent on what they were doing, that patent would have had no relevance to what ins- what that product ultimately ended up becoming. Um, uh, and that it would have been wasted money and time on that. And that kind of leads me to the to the second problem, which is a bit of a uh, it's a little bit uh, softer, this this challenge. But I do think, you know, I've seen it and, and I do think it's it's a real problem, you know, like. If if we've if you've ever done you know uh, self help or career success uh, courses, they'll always tell you one of the big biggest pieces of advice is they'll give you is write it down, write down your goals. Um, only if you write them down uh, will you commit to them, and you can look at them every day, every week, and see how are you tracking to that progress. Well, th- there's a you can draw a line from that to what happens if you actually decide to go get an early patent, codifying those ideas into a patent, while some may think is a good idea, actually has the effect of hardening people to that path. And it makes it harder later to pivot to something that is entirely different. Um, and and I've, I mean, I've seen that happen. Uh, people just, the engineers who aren't necessarily savvy enough, they kind of think, well, this is what we're, we're working on now. And it becomes harder for them to think about throwing away code that may have codified what is in that patent uh, because they think, well, that's what this company is about. That's a super interesting example. I mean, it, it suggests that in some ways patents actually uh, can constrain the innovation process that you stop innovating a little bit because you feel that's the recipe for that you've d- identified for the innovation. And that can really harm at the end of the day, what your final output actually looks like. You 100%. Know. And, and I'll, you know, a, a follow on to that is, you know, this is something that's kind of unique to software because, because software can be so iterative. Uh, that, you know, it's not like a hard product where you've got months of design and then you got to go get a prototype casted or printed or something like that or developed a, uh, and, uh, and then you got to test it and then you got to, and you're uh, so, like, especially when you're talking about SaaS software, um, your customers are using it. You are often pushing changes while, you know, online while customers are using the product two, three times a day. Um, so you can, uh, it's so incredibly iterative. I mean, the one, one example that I, that I kind of use when I talk about software and patents, um, is this idea the the analogy, and it's kind of a, maybe it's a poor analogy, but it works for me as to how I think about it in my mind is, you know, when I, if I lived in Vancouver and, and I wanted to drive to Burnaby, you know, I would put in, in my Google maps that I'm, I want to go to Burnaby. And and it would give me a route and I'd be driving. If I veered off of that route, um, Google Maps will recalculate a new route. And there are, I mean, essentially, literally many, like many, many different ways for me to get from Vancouver to Burnaby, different roads, different, like lots of different ways to get there. And um, uh, so I can get to point B in really an unbelievable lots, lots of different ways. And And if you're, kind of stuck going down one path and then that path is closed. How do you get there? Um, and, uh, and, and that's one of the challenges. And, and in fact, it, it kind of also then ties into, um, 
uh, where patents and software could work. Because imagine now if I'm in Vancouver and I want to go to Victoria and I say, I got to take my car. Well, now I have a constraint of only being able to take the ferry across. Um, and, and so where in software, you can see a situation where there is only one way to get there. Well, then maybe in that idea, in that scenario, it's a good idea to patent. Um, but those are often very, very rare situations. Okay. I mean, so, some great examples. Why don't we close with, with this? I mean, you've identified the, some of the downsides and the risks, especially for those that are still at a very early stage of the innovative process and are trying to build the companies of becoming overly reliant or focused on patents. Yeah. But we know, as you talked about earlier, the government has increasingly been focused either as a metric or embedding it within in their policy. You know, how do we get to the, you know, the destiny, if the destination that we're focused on, focused on from a policy perspective is to enhance and increase the level of innovation in the country, you know, what, what would be your policy prescription for dealing with some of Canada's innovation problems? You know, how do we pivot away from this emphasis and focus that we've seen over the last little bit on patents as sort of one of the key focal points? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a complicated issue. One thing I can say, you know, having worked with VCs around the world and being involved in in uh, in companies in different parts of the world is literally every industrialized country in the world thinks they have an innovation problem. Um, and and I mean, I've even read papers about regions in the U.S. that think they have an innovation problem because they're all comparing themselves to Silicon Valley. Um so uh, first, the problem may not be as great as we think it is. Um, uh, you know, I do think there are challenges, but, um, you know, Canada does still get its fair share of, uh, of winners. Um, uh, so, so, you know, let's keep that in mind. But, uh, you know, I look at, at startups uh, really as the main uh, driver of innovation in our, in our country. Uh, uh, and ultimately, that, that results in jobs and, and hopefully Canadian prosperity. Um, and, uh, and really, so anything you can do to help move along startups. And, and I think of startups as I, I like, I like to try to think of it as a, as a funnel. So, uh, you know, at the very top, you start with, you know, super bright people with, uh, with, uh, you know, with great ideas. And how do you kind of match, uh, those ideas? Maybe it's through a university, maybe not. Uh, maybe it's just individuals that have come up with the ideas on their own. How do you match them with the right team of people, with the dollars they need to kind of push things along? And then, you know, then the company kind of falls down the funnel a little bit more. So, you know, how can government provide assistance to the next stage of company around commercialization of the, of their uh, early customer wins? Um uh, you know, so and you kind of go all the way down to, you know, you know, eventually, hopefully the company is large and starting to scale. So now how do you help them with export opportunities and and selling globally? And so, like, that's where I think government should be focused. And, uh, you know, there's lots of different areas that that could be tweaked. But, uh, you know, I think that is that is a much, you know, that's much more fruitful. Uh, uh, and you're going to get better results if that's where people are focused. Okay. Well, Peter, it's not clear that the government's been hearing that perspective so far. It's we know what the focus has been. It's it's reflected in in some of the policies, but you know it's pretty clear that I think policymakers would 
do well to to be listening quite frankly to, to the people who are actively engaged in that community who have seen what works and at times what what doesn't work and begin to craft some of their policies in that direction and so grateful for you taking the time to to walk through some of your experiences and for you choosing to to speak out on some of these issues it's it's something that doesn't get enough attention thanks uh, for doing that and thanks so much for joining me on the podcast yeah great thank you uh, thank you for having me uh, i enjoyed it That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy Brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.